Pastor Mike is in Nepal uh, for the next uh, about 10 days, and uh, he's working, um, he's traveling with uh, Liz and Dana Niles and Jim uh, Caseman from AFCM. That's the association that we're a part of, that we're accountable to. Um, and we're the kind of the mission there in Nepal is there, uh, we, uh, is to translate and teach um, our, from our school of ministry curriculum um, into um, the native language there. Um, and so that's oftentimes it's best done um, on site, on premise. Um, and so he's there with that. Um, our association actually has a worldwide ministry um, of Bible schools. And so this is just kind of the next chapter in that. And they're also doing a youth conference with about um, a thousand high school age students um, that are expected uh, at the kind of uh, in the cultural backdrop of one of the largest pagan festivals that they have in the year. And so we're just believing for moat evaporating miracles um, that uh, God will demonstrate not only his power, but his love and his mercy um, to the people and to the young people in Nepal. Um, with And I know, uh, Pastor, I'm just excited that Pastor Mike gets to go um, and to be a part of it uh, and to really uh, bring all that God has given him um, into that space and that context. So please continue to pray um, for him and to hold him up probably for the next week or so. Uh, he left early this last week. Um, we are in a series called Faith Foundations. Um, and last week, uh, Pastor Mike shared on living by faith. And this week, we're talking about the love walk. I'm going slow and it's carpeted. <laughs> Not the moonwalk, the love walk. Now, did you know in the early churches, um, they argued about a lot of things? That wasn't just uh, something that we struggle with today. Imagine that. Imagine that. They argued over, what did they argue over? Give me some examples. What? They argued over they argued over dietary restrictions and which diets to be on. Oh, that sounds like us today. Um, what else? They argued over communion, right? Who could take communion? Who, who couldn't? Oh, that sounds like us today. No. Um, it was there. Who else? What else did they argue over? Where to worship. That's right. They argued over where to worship. Did they have to worship in a building or were they really, you know, this is organized religion. They should really be in house churches. Well, they argued over that too. Uh, what else? What? When to worship. Yes. What was the Sabbath? What time of day? When to worship? Was it on Saturday or Sunday? I, yep. They argued over that too. That's not just us. Um, what else? Keeping the law. Circumcision. That's always my favorite, man. I mean, you gotta, you, my mother's side of the family is Jewish, so it was always particularly a healthy debate in our family. My, my dad's side of the family, they go back to Texas, all the way to the Republic of Texas, um, and uh, my mom's side of the family is Russian Jews, so we always had a, a, a Wild West debate over that. Um, they, they had a debate then, too, not just over cleanliness. Uh, what, what else? What? Who to preach to? Who to preach to? 
who to preach to, right? Was it just for the Jews or was it also for us Gentile folk? Um, yes, they argued over that. You know that they, they also argued over parenting. They argued over gender roles in marriage and in the church. Sounds like us today. They argued over political involvements. They argued over legalism. They argued over church leadership. They even argued over the volume of drums and lighting in weekend services. No, that's actually only us. No, we, we've added to the list. But they've also, they also argued over branding. Who follows who? Some considered themselves disciples of Paul. Some considered themselves disciples of Apollos. Some considered themselves disciples of Peter. And they had this kind of ongoing argument, who are you disciple of? Because that's kind of the way um, the culture was. Which rabbi were you going to follow? Which, which group were you going to be a part of? Oh, that kind of sounds like us too. We love to form our own tribes, our own groups. In fact, there's a wide body of research that finds that we are hardwired for it. And grouping is not necessarily good or bad. It can be altruistic or destructive. We're a group. We're a tribe. We receive new people that feel that God has called them to plant here. But as Paul said, we, whether it's Paul, whether it's Peter, Apollos, Pastor Mike, Pastor Jeff, we're just messengers. We're playing our part to sow seed, to water seed. But it is God who causes you to grow. You are only disciples of one, and that's Jesus. That's what Paul was contending. He, he contended for that over and over to every church in Asia, to Philippi, to Ephesus, to the church in Rome, to the church in Galatia, to the church in Ephesus. I probably said that twice. It's probably because I don't have to use this anymore. We're trying out a new technology system. Let's see. I have control of my own slide deck. Hallelujah. So here is uh, Paul when he's wrestling with the church at Ephesus over this idea, hey, you're, don't call yourselves disciples of Paul or disciples of Peter or, he, or disciples of Apollos. He, he, said, you know, he, he wrestled with various churches about this. He said, you know, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. Not a God we can't see, but be imitators of God according to the example of the one who we can see, Jesus, who walked in love, his love walk, Right, We can see, we saw his love walk. We can imitate his love walk. What Paul was saying is, is don't become a copy of a copy. Become a copy of the original. Have you ever seen copies of copies? Of copies of copies? Every little blemish of each copy gets magnified and extended. And by the time you get several copies down the road, it doesn't really look like the original anymore. 
There's a good lesson for us in that. We're messengers. We're sowing seed. We're watering seed. But we're not making disciples of Jeff or disciples of Denise. We're making disciples of Jesus. And we're pointing people to him to become a copy of the original, not a copy of a copy. The idea, this idea of walking in love, right? It, walking in something is not just to philosophize about it, not just to feel something about it. Walking means to embody something, to follow something, to become like someone. It's movement, it's motion, it's going somewhere. It's not passive. Love, the love walk has a direction. The love walk has a context. The love walk has a path. The love walk has a cadence. The love walk has a temperament. And most importantly, this love walk is a person. And you and I probably understand a lot about love intuitively. So I'm not going to try and break down every aspect of love, but I'm going to try to highlight some of the aspects of this love walk that are not intuitive. They may seem to us unnatural, or better said, supernatural. Jesus wrestled with his disciples and with the Pharisees and with all kinds of people about their perception of the world, their perception of God's love, and he continually directed them to observe and that they would learn something different, a different way of walking in the world and walking before people, with people. So in this passage, better said, right, uh, oh yeah, I can use it here. I'm going to get distracted if I have that on. I've been so used to using that. Okay. Nice. So supernatural love, this love walk. One of the first things we see, right, that, that Christ did is we walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You know, in Romans 5, chapter 1 and 2, this supernatural love walk, love intervenes while they are still. Paul was talking about the love walk of Jesus. He said, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Twice there he says, when we were still, while we were still. Love is about what you do while they are still. Do you have a while they are still in your life? Do you have a child who is still rebelling, still on drugs, still acting a fool? Do you have a parent who is still hurt, still troubled, still resentful? Do you have a spouse who is still traumatized, still something, still 
Do you have a brother or sister? I, I have a relative who is still something. He's still running from God. He's still all kinds of things. And I struggle with this idea that love is about what I do when he is still. The love walk of Jesus is when they are still. It's not intuitive. It's not natural. It, in fact, when we love when they are still, that's, that sets us apart. That highlights love in a way that people are like, that's not normal. You're right. It's not. It's God. It's Jesus. Love calls the troubled and the troublemakers. We're going to take a look at, you know, uh, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus befriended Matthew the publican, who was a tax collector. And the tax collectors were agents of the Roman government. They might be, they were Hebrews, but they also made a dirty deal with the Roman Empire to collect taxes for them. And so most of the Jewish people thought they were um, just, they were oppressors. They were worse than sinners. And so when the Pharisees saw this, saw Jesus befriending a tax collector, the Pharisees asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, right, Jesus didn't allow his disciples to answer that question. They probably would have screwed it up. But good thing he interrupted, he cut them off, he overheard, and he stepped in and answered. Jesus said, it is not healthy, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know what the irony of his response is? Was there anyone in, within earshot, let alone, was there anyone on the planet that was not sick or a sinner, according to this definition? No. So he's setting up this, he's like, I didn't come to call the healthy, or I, I didn't come to be a doctor to the healthy, I came to be a doctor to the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Yet everyone who was listening to him was sick and was a sinner. And everyone on the earth at that time was sick under the weight, under the curse of sin in the earth, and was a sinner. So the comparison couldn't have been between those who are physically healthy or sick or spiritually righteous and sinner. The comparison Jesus makes is between those who don't believe they have any need of a doctor or a savior and those who rightfully do. Jesus did not come, come to affirm the self-righteous. He comes to save those who know they need him. That's whether they're troubled and they're victims or they're troublemakers and oppressors. That's hard for us. It's hard for us to desire mercy from those like Matthew, who were tax collectors, who were oppressors, who were difficult, who had earned the bad rep, rap that they had. It is hard 
It is not natural. It's supernatural. It's not normal to desire mercy for them. And last, love supersedes law. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. So Jesus is out with his disciples. He's been, they've been on a, a long day of ministry, and they were coming back to their three-bedroom, two-bath house in the Burbs, where they had Costco pizza waiting for them, provided by their youth pastor. No, they were actually walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were so hungry, he told them to, be, to go ahead, pick some grain and eat. Pick grain out of fields that weren't his. The Pharisees saw this. They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And here's, he answered, Jesus answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says something greater than the temple is here. You know, the temple, he wasn't referring just to a building. He was referring, the temple stood for, for what? For what? Okay. It, the house of God, the law. Thank you, Daryl. Somebody was in chapel. No. <laughs> yeah, the temple stood for the law. It stood for the religious system. It stood for the custodial leadership of the Pharisees. It stood for the hierarchy of authority. He said something greater than the temple is here. And that meant that he could have his disciples eat from the grain fields that weren't his on a Sabbath when they shouldn't be working, and yet they weren't in violation of anything that mattered to God. It's like today, I, we should really be very careful about going to bed with political parties. Why? Because in doing so, we lose the prophetic ability to speak truth to them and to any power structure, any principality, any ruler of this age. We have to realize that first, we are citizens of heaven we're children of God. We have the, the unique and needed responsibility to prophetically speak truth. People in every political party need truth, need love, need to hear prophetically from the children of God. These really are confusing times. So when we're hazy about the kingdom of God or our assignment, we really need to look to Jesus, not become a copy of a copy of a copy 
of a copy. We need to look to Jesus and become a copy of the original. He was not a domesticated puppet of the Pharisees, the Romans, or any political system of his day. He is neither a member of any of our power structures today. He was, and still is, beautifully radical, graciously countercultural, always exercising his power for good, especially the poor and the marginalized. Just, I am not in no way advocating anarchy, rebellion, revolution, political avoidance. It is our responsibility, it is my responsibility to engage, to vote, and not just to vote, to vote our conscience, our faith, to press in, to not become jaded, not to just keep calling the darkness dark, but to continually say and press in and say, let there be light. Love is not anti-authority. Jesus is not anti-authority. This is not an anti-authority message. But we do need to shine the light again on the ultimate authority, and that's God. And the way in which Jesus exercised his authority and the way he walked in supernatural love, his love walk was different than what we've made it to be. Five times in the Gospels when illuminating these counterintuitive aspects of his love walk, Jesus tells people, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I wish you knew what this meant. It must be something he didn't come up with on the moment. It's, not, it's nothing new. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. There is a significant key here to understanding Jesus, to understanding God, to becoming a copy of the original. What was Jesus referring to? Anyone know the passage? What is, come on, Jeopardy. Bible knowledge, Bible facts, wake up, let's go. Anyone, could be Psalms, I don't know. Is it a prophet, part of the law? Was it a major prophet, a minor prophet? It was a prophet, I'll give you that. Ooh, somebody has their Android out. <laughs> Micah, yes. Yeah, so it, it, he was referring to a passage in Micah chapter six. Micah was one of the 12 minor prophets. We call it minor prophets. I'd probably think that would be offensive if we told him he was a minor prophet. Um, but uh, he lived about 700 years before Jesus. And this passage in Micah chapter 6, God is recounting all his righteous ways. He's, he's recounting his patience, his guidance, his fortitude, his long-suffering, his mercy, his redemptive acts, along with all the sins and corruption of the people of Israel. He's saying, this is what I've done for you, and this is what you've done with what I've done for you. This is what I've done for you. This is what you've done with what I've done for you. This is what you keep doing, and this is how I responded. This is what you keep doing. This is how I responded. And you have to, you see, you begin to see how God is patient, not just in your lifetime, but over generations. You begin to see how God desires mercy not just in your lifetime and in this week, 
but over generations. And Micah becoming overwhelmed not only with the majesty of God, with the holiness of God, with the justice of God, but with his desire for mercy, Micah responds in verse 6 and 7. He inquires of God. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's asking within the kind of the, the view that he had, he's asking about a sacrifice he can make, right? He wants to make penance. And oftentimes when we come into direct like when we encounter the holiness and the justice and the power and the long-suffering of God, our response is like this. What, what can I do for you? What can I do to make this right? And God answers, I have shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to desire mercy, to step humbly with your God. The same requirement that God gave to Micah is the same way that Jesus walked on the earth, is the same way Paul instructs us to imitate. This is the moonwalk of Michael Jackson, the king of pop. No, this is the love walk of Jesus, our example. So let's talk about that with the few minutes that I have left. The first one, let's break these down just a little bit. Because I think it's, it's not intuitive when we read these what they mean. So to act justly is different than bringing people to justice. See, bringing people to justice happens on the outside, and it conveniently puts us in the seat of judge. But acting justly is internal, and it offers up our character first. My mother's family, my mother is a first-generation American. She was the first of her family to be born here, and her mom, my grandmother, was four years old when... Um, she came to the United States, and her parents, my great-grandparents, um, were that would have been called Ludovic and Rebecca Yanofsky, and my grandmother was named Rushka. They were Russian Jews living in the territory of Ukraine, um, which was a part of kind of the Russian Empire. This was 1909, and the period of probably between 1880 and 1915 to 17 was like the the crashing and burning of the Russian Empire. The czars had ruled the Russians or had been in control or in power in Russia for about 300 years. Um, think Princess Anastasia, right, from the Disney movie. Um, right? Um, so you, that, that revolution was the very sputtering end of the Russian Empire. And the reason why there was revolution in the air is because of the extreme economic pressure 
and poverty in the area. This was also a time of the Industrial Revolution. People were moving out of agrarian societies into the city, working in factories. Um, there was extreme economic pressure worldwide, and Russia was falling behind. The, the Russian czars knew they were falling behind. The revolutionary kind of elements, the socialists and the, the Bolsheviks and different things, they were looking and saying they were blaming it on the rulers of the empire as it was. They wanted to bring about a new world system that was socialist in nature. This is how kind of all that was birthed there. Um, and the Jews were caught in the crosshairs, the Russian Jews. And they were um, migrated forcefully around through a co collectivization of labor. It was called the pogroms. Um, and that just referred to a group of people. So Jews were taken to one area. They grew crops until it was almost time to harvest. And then the Russian czars, or they moved them and took them to a new place um, before it was harvest. And they had them work and raise a new set of crops so the government could harvest the crops and sell them for a profit. And so this was, you know, you, Stalin did that later under the, the Soviet Socialist Republic. You had uh, Pol Pot did this in Cambodia. It was this, this collectivization of labor. They were trying to catch up with the industrialized world. And Jews, like my family, were the ones targeted to do this unjust type of work. And so uh, my great-grandparents with their four-year-old daughter, my grandmother, changed their name from Ludovic and Rebecca Yanofsky to Louis and Rebecca Young, and their daughter Rose. Rushka just means Rose in Russian. Um, and they changed their name, and uh, which it was a Western European name, and they came um, to a port city in Poland, and they took a vessel with all of their life savings to Ellis Island. They learned some broken English on the way over. They came in and settled in New York City. Um, my grandmother grew up there, um, and after she got married, her husband actually died in his 40s, and she worked sacrificially almost her entire life as a garment worker, for after six tuxedos in New York City. So she made all the suits that were sold at Saks Fifth Avenue. Uh, and for J.C. Penney, they were the same suit. <laughs> she would always joke about that. Like, my dad had suits that had no labels on them because, you know, if there was some, you know, oddity and they were thrown out, she would take them and then at home, she would sew them and fix whatever was wrong with them and give them to my dad. Um, but they were the suits that were simultaneously in one catalog um, and in a department store for $1,000. Same exact suit off the assembly line. Um, that was a running joke in our, in our family. But she worked a full day's wage even to the, on the day she died. Nobody knew she had breast cancer. She wasn't really raised to trust the healthcare system. And so literally she went to work at After tux Six Tuxedos and went home that night and died in her chair. And so I tell these stories to my own children, both from my dad's side of the family and my mom's side of the family, because I want them to know who they are. And as I was telling this story to my oldest son, couple of weeks ago, he pointed out something I never noticed in my own story. He said, Dad, so they cheated the United States? He's referring to the part when they changed their name 
from Yanofsky to Young, from the, from the Russian name to a Western European name, because this was a season when there was intensely, there was a lot of intense battles over immigration and quotas on who could come from which country. There was a Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 where we, um, our country stopped letting in anyone with, that was from China, and Russia was not on the good list at that time. Um, and so they changed their name, they learned their broken English, and it occurred to me in that moment, the Holy Spirit just convicted my heart, and I saw my great-grandparents with their four-year-old daughter, my grandmother, walking up the gangplank from Ellis Island to somebody who watched them sign their name, Lewis and Rebecca Young and Rose Young, Looking at them, their olive complexion with jet black hair and deep Russian Yiddish accents, there is no way these people were Lewis and Rebecca Young. But I am so glad that that person acted justly and didn't turn them away, didn't bring them to justice. To act justly is to extend dignity to each person as a child of God first. And acting justly starts face to face. I'm not advocating open borders or border walls. These are complex issues, issues we should not run away from. And people's lives hang in the balance. I am, however, advocating that we get face to face with people first before we claim to understand what should be done. The cultures of the world sort and label people for selfish advantages, dehumanizing whole groups of people to such an extent we can't see or we lose the ability to see an individual person as a child of God first. I don't know anything about the, the man or the woman who was watching my great-grandparents write in that logbook, but I'm hypothesizing that they knew about where people like my great-grandparents came from. They knew the intense poverty and impression from where they came from, and they accepted and acted justly with my great-grandparents rather than bringing them to justice. You know, we rarely have control over bringing others to justice, but we always have control over acting justly. The second is to desire mercy. You know, Jesus draws no pleasure from laws that suffocate people or systems that subjugate people. And we see, how did Jesus deal with those that we might have difficulty desiring mercy for? Well, Matthew, the tax collector, he was an oppressor. What did Jesus do? He dined with him and made him a disciple. How about Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, the really bad oppressor? We called, Jesus called him out of hiding, dined with him, forgave him, and released him to a ministry of generosity. How about Nicodemus, a Pharisee, had mercy on him. The woman at the well, who was the shipwrecked life, who had been married five times and was shacking up with another guy, not welcomed, had to go to the well in the middle of the day. Jesus, the scripture said he had to go to Samaria to bring living water, to have mercy on her past and her life in the present, and then commissioned her as an evangelist to her city. How about the woman caught in adultery? 
considered a temptress, a whore. He drew a line in the sand and sent away the accusers troubled. How about the woman with the issue of blood, the dirty pariah, the untouchable, the outcast? He lets her through to his presence to heal her. What about the parables he told? The widow who receives mercy before the judge, the good Samaritan, the unjust steward who receives mercy from the king. I am in no way saying that God has no vengeance, but I am saying that he desires mercy. To desire mercy is to wish forgiveness for others. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. Do you honestly desire mercy for those hurting you? For those sinning against you? For those destroying themselves or sinning against ways of life you hold dear? Do you honestly desire mercy? Could this be one way of understanding what it means to love your enemies? One modern day example, Nelson Mandela, Bishop Desmond Tutu, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. After the apartheid state fell in South Africa, there was a court-like restorative justice body that was assembled. And witnesses or people who were victims of just intense and gross oppression, human rights violations, were invited to testify to what they had experienced. And then the perpetrators of that violence could then give testimony and request amnesty from both civil and criminal prosecution. And the commission was empowered to grant amnesty to those who committed the abuses during the apartheid era as long as there was full disclosure by the person seeking amnesty. Like Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but those who know they are sinners. How do you know you are a sinner? You are able to articulate with humility your sin. Jesus desires amnesty, mercy for people. And the last is to step humbly. You know, James and Peter, apostles, writers of books in the New Testament, they both reference a truth about God's character as described in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. It says, God resists the proud, hands off, but he comes near to the humble. The Amplified says it, God has no use for conceited people, but gives his unmerited favor to those who give up self-importance. Humility was a defining characteristic of Jesus. He always, whatever he heard our Heavenly Father saying, that's what he said. Whatever he saw his Heavenly Father doing, that's what he did. He always kept the Father in view. Everywhere he went, everywhere he walked, he kept the view of the Father in his frame. Walking in love, keeps God in view everywhere you go, with everyone you meet, everywhere you walk. I cannot overstate the importance of this singular truth. The measure of victory that you walk in is often determined by the humility of your walk. 
The measure of victory you can release to others, often determined by the level of humility you walk because God resists your self-importance. He resists your conceit. He resists your pride. He resists my pride. When life ceases to become about my reputation, my house, my team, my political party, my club, my fitness group, my church, my city, my country, or my anything, there is no limit to what God can do through you. When you become a copy of the original, not a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Jesus was saying to act justly, to desire mercy, to step humbly. Jared, can I have a, some music? I want to go to the Lord in prayer because one, I think, why do we not really desire mercy for others? Why do we have trouble acting justly and getting face to face with other people? Why do we have trouble really stepping humbly before God? It's because we really haven't received the full measure of mercy that Jesus has extended to us. We might be like Micah. What can I do? We might be like the Pharisees. Those people are breaking the law. We might be like the people in the early church, arguing over every conceivable thing. But Jesus says, I wish you would go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. Is there anyone here today that needs to receive that mercy completely and fully? Maybe is convicted over the way they have not acted justly, have not desired mercy, have not stepped humbly. We can all stand together just for a minute before we're dismissed. If you want to, if you feel led to, I'm in no way putting any pressure, but if you feel led to, if this Holy Spirit has brought conviction on your heart about anything in this message, about acting justly, desiring mercy, stepping humbly, I encourage you just to come forward and spend a minute with God at the altar. you just come. I'm going to be here at the altar too. I, I have some issues to deal with. I haven't desired mercy for everyone. I haven't acted justly like I should. 
I have not desired mercy. I have desired repayment. I have not stepped humbly. I have been lost in my self-importance, conceited over my talents. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not the love walk of Jesus. we kneel before you, we stand before you and we acknowledge God repent of ways where we have not acted justly we've been more about bringing people to justice than acting justly ourselves God we've wished for repayment we've wished for silence, we've wished for an escape instead of desiring mercy. God, we've held on to our self-importance, our privileges, our rights, instead of keeping you in view and stepping humbly. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness, Lord, for that. We ask that you would fill us again, that we might truly walk in love as Jesus Christ walked in love and gave himself up for us while we were still. just encourage you to spend a minute where you are. Whether it's standing or kneeling, sitting, wherever you need to be with the Lord. 